any man come to me. In this context, as you heard me read, Jesus on three occasions sets the parameters or the conditions for discipleship and then says, if those are not met, you cannot be my disciple. Three times speaking to a mixed multitude of people that are with him on his way to Jerusalem. From Luke chapter 9 where he says, his face was set like a flint to Jerusalem and there who be crucified, buried and raised again the third day. And in this mixed multitude, in verse 25, great multitudes are with him. There are a mixed multitude of reasons, many ideas, many doctrines, many opinions, many ideologies. And Jesus pierces the crowd with these words, If any man come to me. And so my title this morning is, If any man would be my disciple. If any man would be my disciple. Just last month, a prominent pastor in Georgia who pastors a very large church held a conference. In this conference, he made the statement that Jesus draws large circles. Jesus does not draw lines in the sand. Therefore, he and his church does not draw lines in the sand. And the context of what he said, what he meant was, Jesus has a large circle drawn for people who have a same-sex attraction. What he meant by that was, as he affirmed, he believed that marriage is between one man and one woman, and he affirmed that he encouraged those of same-sex attraction to live a life of singleness and celibacy, yet he went on to say, for some people, that's not sustainable. So for them, it's their choice if they choose to live that lifestyle. Beloved, there are more and more churches in our culture that are beginning to embrace such a large circle, suggesting that Jesus has not drawn any lines. But as you can see in our text, there are clear, crisp, definitive lines that Jesus draws. And to be part of biblical Christianity means we need to lovingly, draw our lines the same place Jesus draws His, and we must understand for ourselves what those clear, crisp lines are. So how can we witness biblical Christianity to a world that is lost unless we understand for our own lives what these definitive lines are? So as we look at this subject this morning, ironically, my first point is a very large circle. A very, very large circle. If any man come to me. Any. Any means any. It's an expression. That means there's no restrictions of this call to a specified group or person. What's the specified group? Humanity. Man. It's italicized here, but in Scripture, anthropos is humanity. It embraces man, woman, child, any man. What are the restrictions on this call to discipleship? There are none. There are no restrictions. There's no limitations. Whoever, whosoever, if any man come to me, this is a very, large circle. It's so large, it's absolutely universal. 
There is no person on the planet for which we would preach the gospel to that can embrace it with their understanding. That We would say, they are not embraced in this circle. Jesus said Himself when He gave the Great Commission to the apostles of the church in Matthew 18 or 28, 18, All power, all authority, all rule has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore on that basis and teach all nations. The word teach, as you know, is the Greek verb of the same Greek word disciple. Make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. Which then means if we are to be about that commission as a church or as Christians... You have to go into all nations and all people groups in order to fulfill that command. Jesus is saying, go to every creature, for there is no creature off limits to the call of the gospel. In Matthew or Mark 16, 15, he gets more specific. In Mark's version of the Great Commission, he said, go ye into all the world and preach to every creature. What does he mean by creature? Verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. He, referring to what? Humanity, people, every creature is every person that can embrace the gospel. I only say that because we don't preach to infants. Every single creature, every person, every nationality, every skin color, There are no restrictions and no limitations to this circle. It is broad, it is as wide as everybody under heaven. Peter would say in Acts chapter 4, This is the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the headstone of the corner. And there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. If you're in Mecca, you're under heaven. If you're in Russia, you're under heaven. If you're in Afghanistan, you're under heaven. And there's no other name whereby men must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. So the gospel call goes universally. There is no one you should refrain from speaking the gospel to. It's universal, the call to discipleship. But now, right after this large, broad circle, Jesus begins to draw some lines. So it's not a matter. He only draws circles. He only draws lines. He draws both circles in the Bible, and He draws definitive, crisp, sharp lines. And so now we see, secondly, the demands of Jesus for discipleship. Anybody that wants to come, any person, Here are Jesus' demands to the world. Number one, you must change your way of thinking. That's a sharp line, isn't it? If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, whatever Jesus is saying here, we would all agree, that is a radical change in how you think. Not only about your family, but about your own life. That is far-reaching and a thorough transformation of how you view your own life. Whatever he means when he says, you've got to hate your own life, you've got to change what you think about your life. Or you cannot be his disciple. 
And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now they knew what that meant. They knew a Roman cross was a place of humiliation, torture, and execution. They knew that when someone carried the cross, which the Romans required, at least the cross beam, they never came back. Ever. They died. Now whatever Jesus is saying, and we'll look at that, it's going to take a radical far-reaching transformation in the way you think about your life and about your relationships. Or you cannot be, I cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What is this thinking called in Scripture? It's called repentance. It's called repentance. Repentance is a compound word. Meta means a, a change of direction or movement. And noia means to perceive, understand, or think a certain way. So this is more than just sorrow over sin and a change of behavior. It's a fundamental change of direction in what you think about Jesus Christ. And we see that in the great supper that was just read. A man, a wealthy man, made a supper. And he bade many. And then when all things were ready, he sent his servant out to call them that were bidden to the supper. The gospel call first went out to Jews. Notice it's going to go to others in the city later, and then it's going to go outside the borders of Israel, the hedges, which is a partition, way upon the borders, Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth. In ancient Israel, when a wealthy man made a supper, there were two invitations. The first one invited the people to the uh, banquet, for which presumably they would give their RSVP saying, Sure! You bet. It was a privilege and an honor. Who wouldn't want to go to a banquet of a rich man? And there's going to be a spread. And so presumably everybody said yes. Well, probably because they didn't have clocks and watches on timing, they would send a second invitation out saying, now all things are ready. They're ready at hand. Now Jesus is referring to a great supper of the Lamb that's coming future, but He's also referring to the readiness of His own crucifixion that would then send out what? The gospel call to bid people to come. The Master calls, come and dine. So present application, but a future ultimate application of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then, one by one, they begin to make excuses. There's three excuses that is expressed for all the people that didn't come. One, I bought a piece of property. I bought land. I can't come. Please have me excused. Now, there'd be plenty of real estate agents would love to have clients like that, right? I got this land down in South Florida, way down in South Florida, I'd like to sell you. It's called the Everglades. Who buys a piece of property and they never step foot on it? Nothing but an excuse. Secondly, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go test them. Again, who would buy oxen and not test them? The ox was the most important beast of burden because it represented work on the farm. Very important for the Jewish people. Do you think they would die in one night? The banquet didn't last for a month. It was an evening. No, they'd be there in the morning, presumably. Excuse number two. Number three, I have married a wife and I cannot come. Did you not know your wedding date when the invitation came? Would you not have said, look, that's the week I'm getting married. I can't come. Or we'll be on the honeymoon. Did you not know the date of the banquet? I mean, this is probably a few weeks after, maybe a few days. It's not like years later. I've married a wife. I cannot come. Would your wife not want to experience the honor and privilege of being at the banquet? Sure she would. 
excuse number three. Jesus in Luke chapter 9 gives the three reasons related to these excuses. When he would say, the, the seed that fell on the thorny ground, it choked the word because of the cares. I bought a piece of property. Riches, I got to go to work and make money. Now that's not a bad thing. And pleasures, I've married a wife. You see, the problem is the priority. The priority was the cares, the riches, and the pleasures. And they did not go to the banquet of this wealthy man. So he sends them out into the, to the lanes of the city, the alleys, to get the poor, the maimed, the blind, blind and the halt. What, the hungry, the afflicted, the destitute, and the needy. And then he goes far and says, go, go everywhere else. Go outside the borders of Israel. There, there's plenty of room. Now the application in verse 24 is this. For I say unto you. Now Jesus turns from third person to first person. Which tells us what? He's the wealthy man. I say unto you that none of those men which are bidden shall come to my supper. My supper. Three observations here. One we just made. This is the marriage supper of Jesus. He's bidding. He's calling. And the call goes out with the gospel. Number two. The reason for their excuses is found in the word taste. They didn't like what was on the menu. They did not want to spend time with the wealthy owner. Jesus is the wealthy man in the parable. And when there's no taste for Jesus Christ, when there's no taste for the food on His menu, what happens? Excuses, excuses, and more excuses. And what is Jesus demanding by the word taste? He's demanding a fundamental difference in your thinking and how you view Jesus Christ, which is called repentance in the Bible. See? The sorrow over sin and the transformation in lifestyle is because you now see Jesus in a totally different way. If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming. Where there's no taste, there's no coming. Repentance is a far-reaching, thorough transformation first in how we view the glory, the beauty, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Without that, all transformation is just external transformation. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. The fruit is not the repentance. The fruit is commensurate with repentance. So they begin to ask him, what, what do we do? What do we do? If you've got two coats, give one away. If you've got plenty of food, give some away. Be content with your wages. The fruit that reveals a far-reaching transformation in your thoughts about the supremacy of Christ is what? If you only got two coats and you give one away, you're satisfied with one coat. I mean, you're okay. You're content. If you have plenty of food and you give some of it away, you're okay with what you have left over. And of course, if you're content with your wages, then you're satisfied with your wages. The fruit 
of transformation that is commensurate with repentance is being satisfied in the supremacy of Jesus Christ because you've tasted His grace. Jesus demands it from His disciples. In fact, He says, you won't make it. And many of the people in that multitude, they didn't make it. After Jesus came and went on resurrection, the crowds thinned out massively because they didn't have a taste for the menu of the Great Supper. Do you have a taste for Jesus Christ? Does your heart desire Jesus Christ? Is His beauty and His loveliness on the cross for you? Is His crucifixion for you? Is His love something that sustains you? You're a true disciple of Jesus Christ. If you can't answer that question affirmatively, then Jesus is calling you to discipleship and saying, look at me, be saved, and see that there's nothing superior to Him on this planet. Number two, Jesus demands, and this is the next line, that a disciple must love Jesus more. You must love Jesus more. More than what? More than your family and more than your own life. If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You say, well, it doesn't say love more, but the implication is the comparative degree. Why does hatred exist? Hatred is that emotion that you have when something opposes what you love. Right? If somebody hates their own life in a way that Jesus is not talking about here, they just hate their life. Why? Because it's not going the way they love. Hatred exists in the context of something opposing what you love. If a child really hates their parents in a way that Jesus is not calling for, why do they hate them? Because they're in the way of the life that they love. And therefore, there's no relationship. Hatred exists where what you love is opposed, you're against it. There is animosity. There's malice towards it. Now, Jesus is even more clear with the wording in Matthew chapter 10, and I'll turn there, where he uses the language of the comparative degree. He is sending his apostles out by 12 at this point to preach the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only, initially, first. And in Matthew 10, he's trying to prepare them with what's going to happen because they're, they're not thinking straight. So this is what he says in Matthew 10. Verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Because that's what they're thinking. They're thinking the Messiah, Shalom, the Prince of Peace has come. And we're going to go out and tell Israel, and it's going to be a rallying cry, and everybody's going to be unified and happy, and it's going to be great. So Jesus prepares them and says, Don't think that's going to happen. I didn't come to send peace I came to be a divider. That's what a sword does. Now, how is it that Jesus 
divides. Verse 34, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. See, the source of division is the gospel. When the gospel is sent forth, it's going to divide people. More so in this culture than probably any other time, although that still happens today, doesn't it? This is Christianity at its beginning. When the gospel came in that mixed multitude, and when Jesus was raised from the dead, those relationships started to divide. What divided them? Believing, repenting, and loving Jesus more than everything else brought a division. Why does Jesus probably say your family and your own life? Because those are the things that are most dear on the planet. Is it not? Is not your own family the most dear, precious thing to you on the planet? See, it's those things that are supposed to be second that often become primary. Your life is very precious. You preserve it. You try to take care of it. You don't want it to end early. It is precious. And Jesus takes those two things and says, unless you hate or unless you love me more than these, you cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, he says it specifically. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus is affirming his own value. And we would agree with that, wouldn't we? As much as we love family and life, there's no comparison. Jesus is supreme. So he's not calling on hatred because we're to honor mother and father and we're to love children and love family. He's calling on the comparative degree. And when you love Jesus more than family, it's going to look to the human eye that you have a total disregard for your family when in fact you don't. It looked to the Jewish people. You people are following this imposter. You're leaving the true religion. That's blasphemy. And you hate your parents. It only appeared that way because they loved Jesus more. All right, here, some observation and application. Number one, does your family know you love Jesus more than your family? That's a tough one, isn't it? Do they see your commitment to the kingdom of God as superior than the people in your family? Now, ultimately, we would hope that 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 commitment would would bring the whole family along. And sometimes it doesn't. Would they know Dad sees the supremacy of Christ above everything else, even the children? This is what Jesus is calling for. And He says to me and you, if not, you can't be my disciple. And so we go back to point one, what He's demanding. Repentance... Always demanding that over and over to get back to the place where we're seeking first the kingdom of God and everything else is subservient to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is worthy. And we should communicate that in loving ways with our words and our actions with regard to the value of the kingdom of God. Secondly, 
Does this sound egocentric? Yes, in fact, it does, doesn't it? If a man says that, I demand that you love me above everything. You'd say, this guy. (laughs) Egocentric is to be self-centered. And to think of yourself as the only one, the only important one. Let's think about that. If you love Jesus more than your own life, what will that mean for you personally? And if you love Jesus more than your own family, what would that mean for your family? First, it would mean you're the most satisfied person on the planet. Now, who is Jesus being good to? The person He demands that His love be your supreme delight? means for you, you're going to be able to give away one coat. You're going to be able to give away food. And you're going to be content with your minimum wage until you can get another job. (laughs) Because you'll be the most satisfied person on the planet. Who's Jesus after? He's after your good. This is called Christ-centric. Not self-centered. God could never be self-centered because there's always three persons and one God. There's always three people to love right? In the way that we call self-centeredness. So when God is God-centered, it's always about three people, not just one self-centered Allah kind of God, right? If you love your family, or Jesus rather, more than your family, what does that mean for your family? It means you will be going after them with such great love They will be the most loved people on the planet. Why? Because you're satisfied or you're loving God, which means then you're loving your neighbor. You're loving God if you don't love your own life better than Jesus. And now you're loving your family and they are the most loved people on the face of the earth. So who is Jesus after? When Jesus is Christ-centered, He's doing it for your ultimate good. Isn't that amazing? Everything Jesus does when He does it for God's glory and your good, it's going to bring us to the center of God's blazing glory. And there is the best possible place you could be. So is Jesus loving people when He demands this of disciples? Yes, He is. If He doesn't make these demands, what is He doing? He's hating people. Because he's telling them, go on being satisfied in your own life. You don't need to repent. Come as you are, stay as you are. That would not be right. Because that would remove God outside the center of everything. Jesus demands that we love him over everything. When he demanded that of the rich young ruler, remember? The rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the law. Honor your mother and father. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet. I've done all that from my youth up. One thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven. Take up your cross, follow me, or be my disciple. He went away grieved because he had great possessions. The one thing that the man lacked that meant he couldn't love his family 
He couldn't love anybody, although he thought he did, is he didn't love God. He was at the center. He loved his own life above everyone. And the fruit of that was he had great possessions and he could not depart with it. Oh, beloved, the demands that Jesus makes are so good for humanity and so good for his people. And sometimes we don't see them that way. Well, he's just being a killjoy. He's just telling me, don't do this, don't do that, like a parent that's trying to smother his children. Been there, done that, right? God is calling you to freedom and to life and to enjoyment. Are you blind? Am I blind sometimes? Yes. Yes, I am at times. Number three, a disciple must carry his cross. Back in Luke 14. Whosoever Cometh after me. Doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is demanding that we carry our cross. He says his cross. And while sometimes we can use the cross to express ideas of difficulty, challenges, trials, Bearing a cross through the troubles of life. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying we must die to self with regard to self-interest and self-centeredness. That's the pinpoint of what Jesus is saying. You can see these words in Luke chapter 9. In verse 22. Luke chapter 9 verse 22. Jesus said, now he's talking to his disciples. And the apostles were in that group of disciples. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be slain and raised the third day. And He said unto them all, universally, whoever was there, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow Me. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? The songwriter posed the question, no, and Jesus makes it clear. His demand, he, he, he redemptively carried the cross. But now he says, if you want to be my disciple, and he wants us to be his disciple, you have to carry a cross, which means to deny yourself, your own life that you hate comparatively. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Three reasons. Jesus gives as to why he demands this and why we must do it. Three reasons. Number one, because whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So to save, to preserve, to keep your own life means you will not carry a cross. You will not die to your own self-interest. In fact, you will preserve that. You will save that. You will pursue self-interest and you will pursue your own life. Then you're going to lose it forever. You'll lose your life forever and ever and ever. And I would lose mine too. What's Jesus demanding? 
Die to your own self-interest. Live for him. That's not an optional statement. This is not Pauline kind of elitism. This is not those really hardcore Christians. This is any man, any woman, any person. If you're going to be my disciple, this is what it requires you. You're not going to be able to be my disciple. To lose your life is to die on the cross daily, which requires daily work, doesn't it? This is not a one-time beginning at baptism and I'm done. Every day you've got to crucify and put to death things in your life. So to lose your life, to lose your self-interest is for His sake. Somebody asked me, how do I go about doing this? I need to deny to myself. Look at Jesus again and again and again because it's for His sake. What did He promise you? What has He said to you? How is He loving you? What is He doing for you? What is He about? And the Holy Spirit will fill you with the power to lose yourself every single day because that's what it's going to take. You know what? Every morning I wake up and I just start filling myself up again with my own self-interest. It just comes out my thoughts, my words. You ever have that problem? Because how long can I go through a day and be filling myself with my own self-interest, my own agenda, what I want to do, rather than His sake. His sake. So if you save your life, which means you are not going to do any self-denial, you're going to lose it forever. Number two. Verse 25. For what is the main advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself and be a castaway? Right, two things here. Jesus more definitively tells us what it means to save your life and not bear your cross. It means you're after the gain of the world. So he poses the question for that person. You're trying to save your life. You're into self-interest. You don't want to take up your cross. You're not going to take up your cross. Tell me this. What is the advantage if you are successful in your gain? Some people will be successful, won't they? You go your whole life pursuing self-interest and you have a measure of success monetarily, prosperity, health, and in every way. Oh, maybe you didn't gain the whole world, but of course that's what this man is after. You get some measure of success and at the end you are cast away from the presence of Jesus forever. What did you gain? What did you gain? Nothing but a vapor, a blip of pleasure that ends in an eternity of woe. We would call that suicide in a figurative way. Why are you just committing suicide? Have your eyes been opened to who Jesus is? And bear your cross. Because the little tiny pleasures that you're denying are going to give way to a massive banquet where the food is indescribable because Paul calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. The true wealth of God forever. What big deal is it for 80 years of self-denial for that? Now, be careful here. Self-denial is not the means that purchases it or gains it. It only shows that 
it's all for Jesus' sake, right? You have to be careful. Jesus is not saying, look, if you'll just do enough self-denial, I'm going to let you in. Well, how much is enough? And Well, it's got to be perfection. Now, if you attach yourself to me by faith, and you live walking with me, the fruit will be of the self-denial for my sake, and in front of you is the hope of eternal, everlasting glory. Have we lost hope? If we do, we won't be able, able to be a disciple. Because we'll be turned away again and again. And lastly, reason number three. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me in my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory in his Father's and of the holy angels. In Matthew, I think Jesus says, ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation. So that when you're trying to save your life because you want to gain the world, you'll be ashamed of Jesus and his words because you want the approval, the applause, and the praise of the world. And you will not deny yourself that. Because you want their gain. All of us have occasions of being ashamed of Jesus, don't we? Ashamed to speak. Ashamed at times. Peter was ashamed. We clearly see Jesus is talking about the kind of person that this is, this is who they are. This is what they're about. This is what they want. So that ashamed of Jesus and his words. What would Jesus do? He's going to turn his face away from everyone whose shame is rooted in the gain of this world because of self-interest. And he'll turn his face forever. Beloved, if I spend all my life preaching sermon after sermon, and the only reason is accolades and praise, he's going to turn his face away from me forever. That's what he's saying. So the flip side of that is then what? It's for his sake, the gospel's sake. Self-denial is rooted in the supremacy, the glory, the beauty, the love, the faithfulness, the mercy, the grace, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, the person of Christ. And the only way we could possibly deny our own self-interest, which we have them, is by the love of Christ. So how do you practice self-denial? Look at the love of Christ. Look at Jesus and keep looking. And that's what produces self-denial. And lastly on this point, the last demand is surrender. We'll call that faith. Jesus demands that you believe in Him. He demands a surrender. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, before he said, come to me, now he says to come behind me, which speaks of him being your guide. You cannot be a disciple unless Jesus is your guide. Psalm 73, 24. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Psalm 25, 9. The meek shall he guide in judgment. Psalm 23, He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me, they rod, and Thy staff, they comfort me. 
He's leading you for His namesake. Where is that going to take you? Well, the guide is going to take you places you don't want to go. That's what He told Peter and John, right? Now, everybody wants a guide when the guide is going to give you guidance on where you want to go. That's easy. I like That's a good guide. Here, go see this tour guide. Why? He told me the best places, the fun places, the comfortable places, the enjoyable places. Go see that guy. That's not who Jesus is. You're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's a place of robbers going up to the pasture land on the mountain. They're thieves, they're robbers, they're people who want to take the sheep. He's got a rod and he's got a staff. And he'll guide you through the rough places of life. To be a disciple says, I surrender all to Jesus Christ. I trust Him. He's a good guide. He's a wise guide. He's a powerful guide. He has my best interest at heart. And therefore, it may be in the valley, the songwriter wrote, where countless dangers hide. It may be in the sunshine that I in peace abide. But this one thing I know, if it be dark or fair, if Jesus is with me, I'll go anywhere. Is that your attitude this morning? Jesus is a faithful guide. And he says to this crowd of people, here's a line in the sand, any man can be my follower, but to be my disciple, you've got to trust me, believe in me, you've got to treasure me, and you've got to surrender all to the guidance of Christ. So we have to go back to point one, right? Repentance, love, self-denial, and guidance. Now, the repentance is that daily act of bearing a cross. That's included there, right? Have we ever resisted the guide of Jesus Christ, the guide of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. We come back to the place of self-denial, following Jesus. Now, Jesus gives the reasons for these demands. He says, For which of you, in verse 28, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? I notice three times he's going to use the word finish. Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation, is not able to finish it, all that behold begin to mock him, saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish it. Then he gives the example of a king. What king, going to make war against another king, doth not sit down first to consult whether he be able to, with 10,000, meet him that cometh against him with... 20,000. So the one is to count the cost, the other is to consult. So what is Jesus saying here? To count and to consult. If you don't count the cost, then you won't be able to finish. And if you don't consult, you won't be able to meet the enemy. Anybody is going to do a project if you don't count the cost and look at the labor uh, costs, material costs, uh, fees, insurance, bonding, whatever is involved in this whole package of making an analysis or an estimate, what happens? You don't have the budget to finish. You see, the first problem is an issue of underestimation. Underestimation. Now, is Jesus really calling on us to sit down with a pencil and count up every way everything's going to cost us? I don't even know how you'd do that. No, he's saying, make sure you don't underestimate discipleship. To underestimate means to count something as less important than it really is, what's Jesus saying. 
if you underestimate his supremacy, you won't finish the race. You won't finish the race. Right? If you underestimate all the, really, the, the common denominator of everything we've said for so far, his rule, his power, his grace, his love, his supremacy, if we don't have a right view of Christ, we underestimate him, we hit a massive roadblock in Christianity, which they were about to meet. That mixed multitude was going to hit a major wall. What happened? They stopped. They quit. They didn't finish. You know why? They didn't have a right estimate of the value of Christ. But those that did, they persevered. They kept going. Do you have a right view of Jesus? And where do you get that right view? From Scripture. Scripture. Secondly, overestimation. If a king is going with 10,000 men against 20,000 and he doesn't sit down and think through this, he says, go out to battle, what happened? He overestimated the ability of his men. And what happens? They surrender to the enemy called the devil, the world, temptation, sin. Why? When we overestimate our own ability to fight this fight, you're going to be wiped out. You can't do anything without Jesus. As I've said before, in the Greek language that means you can't do anything without Jesus. So the king says to the 10,000, go whip them boys. It's two to one. Do you know you're outnumbered ten to one in the world? Do you know you're heavily outnumbered? You overestimate your ability. You're going to surrender. And guess what happened to the mixed multitude? Many surrendered. They left, went back to being Jews, went back to the law. Because many of them were putting their faith in their own self-righteousness. And anytime you put your faith in self, you're going to protect that self, protect your own interests, guard yourself, and you won't be persecuted for that. How do you prepare for persecution in this culture? I hear people talk about that today. <clears throat> How would you prepare yourself? <clears throat> you would have a right view of Jesus and a right view of yourself. That will prepare you for persecution. Paul counted all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord and counted them dung that he may win Christ. What prepared Paul for all of his suffering? He just had a right view of the gain of Christ. How would you prepare to be beaten? I don't know how to prepare. I think I've said before, do we, have, do we schedule a Sunday out here? We say, okay, brothers and sisters, the men on one side, the sisters on the other, and so we're going to give each other 30 flogs on the back. We're going to see what it's like and prepare ourselves to be whipped. That's not going to do anything. We're going to beat each other till we bleed and that's going to help us. No. We need to see Jesus high and lifted up as He is. And then when it means your mother and father forsake you, what do you do? I love Him more. I'm going to honor them, but I love Him more. When it means your own life is being beaten and bruised and destroyed, you say, I love Him more. Now you're prepared. To be a disciple. What is Jesus saying? The reason you can't be my disciple is because you won't finish. You won't finish because you don't see me in the right way. And you see yourself in the wrong way. You really think 
your righteousness comes from you? You really think you can go against the enemy called the devil of the world? You really think, church, and we, we gladly affirm, no, we can't, but you can. And so we want to have a right estimation of Jesus. He's everything. He's all in all. It gives us a right view of ourselves. To hate your own life or to love Jesus more is not to be paralyzed, is it? When you see Jesus in the right way and you love Him more than your own life, what happens? Boy, you're, you're moving! And you're facing the opposition with grace and love. And you're loving your enemy. You're loving your enemy. You know why? Because you've lost yourself in the love of Jesus. When I can't love my enemy, when I can't love those people that are lovable, you know why? Because I'm in love with me. I'm in love with me. That's why I can't love you. But I can love my enemy when my enemy is not needed. I don't need you. I've got Jesus. Cut me off in traffic. I don't deserve it. I deserve hell. What of it? Jesus died and made satisfaction on my behalf. So it's not right for you to do that, but I can love you. You can love one another. We can love the lost, dying world only when we have a right estimation of Jesus and a right view of ourselves. And so Jesus draws this conclusion. So likewise, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Third time. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill. Let men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Lastly, we conclude on the declaration of a disciple. The declaration of a disciple. The word forsake means to renounce or to abandon. A formal declaration of one's abandonment of everything. And then Jesus throws in what seems to be a bit odd in relation to that, this declaration of a disciple and says, salt is good. Clearly from Matthew 5, he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its seasoning, it has no more use. Jesus is saying to the crowds, be careful that you make a profession without possession. And of course, in the mixed multitude, that's what happened. Some were there for, the, for conquering the Romans. Some were there for personal prosperity. They were there for all kinds of reasons. Some were there for the right reason. When is salt good? When salt makes a profession about Jesus because salt is in possession of Jesus. If a disciple loses his saltiness, there's no more value there. For example, you could throw some chicken thighs on the grill and put absolutely nothing on them. Nothing. You could take that boring, lifeless, hunk of meat and eat it and it would have all the same nutritional value as seasoned meat. Probably more. Right? Probably more nutritional value. But when you add 
carne asada to chicken thighs? Mm, wow. I think I'm going to do that later today. What happens? Now you take a hunk of lifeless boring meat and it tastes wonderful. To forsake all that you have doesn't mean that you have to give away all that you have, your possessions. It means as a, as a disciple, you've made a formal declaration of your abandonment that all things are anything but Jesus can actually give you joy. Salt is good. Salt is a means of enjoying food. Seasoning is why we enjoy the food. You take away seasoning... And you've lost the enjoyment of just about every food on the planet. Except those that have their own little juices like strawberries and stuff like that, right? We have made a declaration. We've made a declaration. We abandon the idea that anything that we possess can provide us the joy that we're after. So when we make a profession of discipleship, we profess that none of these things can give us joy. Now be salt, church. Be in possession of what you profess. And when you are, you'll be salt. And when you're salt, Jesus will be supreme joy. Because in the context of Matthew 5, that's what He said. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for My name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so persecuted they the prophets before you. You are the salt of the earth. When you are persecuted, when you are maligned, when you are mistreated unjustly, when you are criticized and ridiculed for being a Christian, when you're laughed at and mocked at as Jesus was, and you can rejoice, you are a salty Christian because you're demonstrating you have abandoned anything other than Jesus to being your superior joy. And the proof of that is I still have joy when everything is stripped away from me. You understand the kind of joy I'm talking about. It's the kind of joy Job had. It wasn't the kind of joy that the world has, but he had a contentment and a satisfaction and a deep soul-filled joy in who God was, even though he was broken and shattered for what had happened in his life. When we renounce again and again daily with our cross and we say to the world, they know what you're saying when you say I'm a Christian a disciple. We're saying Jesus is everything. He's life to me. They know what that means. And they're looking now to see, does it really? I know that's what you say, but are you in possession of the treasure, the superior one, the one we sing about, the one we love? I think you are. I think you've showed it. And coming real soon, we're going to get more opportunities to show that Jesus, the one we profess, is really the one we possess. And that we have renounced all things as a means to our joy. And Jesus alone is our joy. If you have ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, you're good. Your word is good. 
And now we see, if we haven't already, that the lines in the sand that you draw are good. They are actually lines of love. Lines that are good for people. Lines that when we observe them, we are loving with a biblical Christianity because we are going out for the good of others with the gospel because of your goodness and love and grace to us. Lord, help us not to be confused as many people are as those that say they are disciples of Jesus Christ and have made a profession will soon show that they have no possession. Lord, keep us from that pathway. Bless us to not only say it, but to know it and to possess through Scripture, through the Word, through prayer, and all the ways you tell us that a disciple possesses Jesus Christ. First, by your grace, and then by the means of grace that comes to us through faith in the Word and everything you say. And Lord, if we haven't been in possession of what we profess, may today be the day of salvation. And if we've turned away from our possession and whom we have still been professing, your word is, come. Come to me. Come to Jesus Christ. He will not cast us out. He will not cast you out. He will embrace you with his love. And He will strengthen and encourage us. He will ground and settle us. He will root and ground us in His love through the Word. May this be ever so true for us. Use us for the glory of Your name and the kingdom in a time of much difficulty and hardship, in a time where troubles abound. But may we renounce all for the supremacy of Christ again and again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.